0: Fresh manna fell to the ground as a gift from God. While the Israelites were in the wilderness, this is what they ate for 40 years. It was fresh from the ovens of heaven, baked by the master baker himself. How the Israelites must have anticipated the taste and smell of each morning's delivery. Just like the Israelites, you too can taste and smell fresh manna. Today, you'll be listening to Pastor Sean Grisendine, pastor of the Oakland Seventh-day Adventist Church and assistant pastor of the Bessemer and Greenland Seventh-day Adventist Churches. Now, here's Pastor Sean.
1: The blessing to be here to worship God in His sanctuary. And we're continuing our journey through the sanctuary in our series. Before we do that, let us kneel for prayer and invite the presence of the Holy Spirit to be our teacher. Dear Heavenly Father, it's a privilege to come into your house and worship and to have our hearts overflowing with gratitude as we learned a few weeks back about entering into your gates with thanksgiving. We praise you, Lord, that you provided a plan at such an expensive cost to yourself in giving your son to die for us that we could be saved. We thank you for the beautiful lessons through the sanctuary that revealed Jesus to us. And I pray that you would hide me behind his cross and that Jesus would be lifted up and that your Holy Spirit, will speak to us personally and individually, that you would be our teacher here today on your Sabbath. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you have ever tried to go on a long trip with a GPS? You need, usually, good directions if you're going to get where you're going. You know, I can imagine if someone gave you a GPS, though, and you said, wow, that's really cool, and you never used it, that the person who gave it to you would think, You're not really making use of this device that's really supposed to help you get to where you need to go. And I think in a very real way, Christ has actually given us a GPS system. And there might be some that look at the features on their GPS. They're like, oh, I like the cool buttons. Or I like the colors. you know. And some people read the Bible and they're like, wow, that's a nice promise. Or that's cool. But if they're not really seeing the way God intended it to be read and the way it maps out the plan of salvation... In a sense, they're missing how to use it appropriately to get them to the final destination. And that's heaven. And so we learned a couple of weeks back about how the sanctuary is the key that unlocks the mystery of the great disappointment that happened in 1844. And that understanding what Christ is doing now for us in heaven is so essential for us to have victorious Christian lives before Jesus returns. And so in John chapter 14, verse 6, probably a well-known text, I invite you to turn there we see that Jesus makes this statement to us in regard to salvation through himself. But what you may not have known is that he's pulling from an Old Testament text in regard to the sanctuary. John 14, verse 6. Notice here, John 14, verse 6. Often we will appreciate more out of texts we're very familiar with when we see them in the light of the plan of salvation in the sanctuary. John 14, verse 6, the Bible tells us, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. How many times have you read this text and thought, this just means I need to accept Jesus? Well, that's true. But the more you understand what Jesus is offering you, and the better that you understand the way he's offering this to you, the clearer your experience with God gets, and the easier it gets to follow Jesus. In fact, God intended that we would know him so well that we would hate sinning. To the point where it's like, we don't want to do that anymore. Because we would rather be with Jesus. So first, he's promised that he's the way. And we're going to learn about that. We're still continuing our journey in the courtyard of the sanctuary. And then the truth, which is actually there within the holy place, where you find the table of showbread, the seven-branch candlestick, the altar of incense. And then the very life of God dwelt in the most holy place. And the only way to experience this is through Jesus. Let's go to Psalm 77, verse 13. Notice here Jesus is building on this concept. Psalm 77, verse 13. Christ was not originating a new truth. He was actually building on the foundation that was already laid through the apostles and prophets, which pointed to him. Psalm 77, 13. The scripture tells us, Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? So the way, we see as Jesus said that he's the way, then it should follow that the truth and the life part would continue through the sanctuary, and we'll see that. So, his sacrifice was intended to take us somewhere by faith, just like a well-used GPS. If you understand how he's laid out the plan of salvation, and you know how it's personally applying into your spiritual life, you can have victory. Jesus did not tend for us to have mediocre, meaningless, pointless lives, but meaning-filled lives in which we know that we're fulfilling God's specific purpose for our lives and our existence. A quote that has brought me a lot of encouragement and I found it first in a book that actually speaks about the sanctuary. How many of you have ever heard of W.D. Frizee? Anyway, he was a semi day pastor, preacher, years ago. But he wrote a book called Ransom and Reunion. I first got my hands on this book years ago. And there's a quote in there from the Signs of the Times, April 22, 1903, paragraph 5. And this is what it says. It says, we were brought into existence because we were needed. Do you feel needed? Do you feel valued? God values you. God has a purpose for your life. And so as surely as he had a purpose for Jesus, he has a purpose for your existence. And so as Jesus became the sacrifice, he said, but now I'm making a way to be able to repopulate heaven with beings that have experienced the power of my character, transforming them. And they've walked the steps that Christ has laid out for us. And when we have this experience, we have something right to the point to tell about how God has been leading us and why we are Seventh-day Adventist Christians, if we truly are. Now, some people have gotten into a lot of questions about the sanctuary, and I'm going to speak quite personally here why I'm very passionate about the sanctuary, because I believe it was this specific point of truth that probably led my parents out of the Seventh-day Church. I don't understand why fully. I know that there was a lot of theological controversy in the 1970s with a man by the name of Desmond Ford, who really challenged the underlying need for there being a sanctuary in heaven. But if we read the Bible as it reads, there is a sanctuary in heaven. You can't dispute that. If you try to reinterpret theology to fit your experience, you'll end up getting into all kinds of different winds of doctrine. And why this touches me at a point in my heart is that I have found more strength, encouragement, and joy knowing the truth as it is in Jesus through the sanctuary than I ever found before I understood this. I mean, I can tell you my before Sunday day Adventist days and my after Sunday Adventist days. I was a professing Christian growing up from the age of five. I had all kinds of questions. Things didn't really make sense to me. I was terrorized by the thought of burning in hell for eternity. I mean, all these ideas don't fit when you look at the sanctuary. Because clearly, there's an end, even in the sanctuary service, to the instigator of evil. That, as Zazel goat, it finally is out in the wilderness, it dies. You know, there's an end to sin. It's not going to just perpetuate and perpetuate. So... I'm very passionate about this because I've experienced a lot of healing and encouragement and strength and victory through it. And my prayer is that you will allow it to personally become a part of your very character and life and thoughts and in most desires. So Christ's sacrifice, and I think we rightly should magnify what Christ has done for us on Calvary. But I think we often are tempted to miss the fact that that wasn't an end in and of itself. Much of theology among Christians today focuses on the cross And it's kind of like, why isn't Jesus here yet? But if you understand what he's doing now, it really makes sense. I'm going to quote from the book Great Controversy, page 489, paragraph 1. It says, The intercession of Christ in man's behalf in the sanctuary above is as essential to the plan of salvation as was his death upon the cross. By his death, he began that work, which after his resurrection, he ascended to complete in heaven. We must, by faith, enter within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered. Hebrews 6, verse 20. There, the light from the cross of Calvary is reflected. There we may gain a clearer insight into the mysteries of redemption. The salvation of man is accomplished at an infinite expense to heaven. The sacrifice made is equal to the broadest demands of the broken law of God. Jesus has opened the way to the Father's throne. And through his mediation, the sincere desire of all who come to him in faith may be presented before God. So in other words, if a person does not understand the rest of the GPS system, so to speak, and doesn't keep following, they almost get stuck at the cross. And that's where I was. I was stuck in a cyclical, okay, I'm trapped in this sin cycle, Lord, forgive me. And then I do it again. And literally, that is a very defeating and discouraging cycle to be in. But God intended that we would so see His character clearly revealed at every aspect in the sanctuary service that when we know God as it is our privilege to know Him, our life will become a life of continual obedience to the point where sin becomes hateful to us and you would rather obey God than sin against Him. And so, I'm just to be very honest, if you have very strong desires to sin against God and rebel against Him, that is like the engine light coming on in your car and saying, pull over and pray. Pull over and get to know God's character. Because I think we often try to deal with the sin struggles like, I just have to grit my teeth and try harder. But the real answer is understanding God's character. If you know who God really is, why would you choose to destroy yourself? That's what sin is. Sin is self-murder. It's a slow process of suicide. You know, I think we rightly should, and I appreciated Elder Monty Hollenbeck's message some time back when he talked about his message was called Shortcut. You know, committing suicide is not the answer, but it's a rising problem in our society. Do you know why? I believe it's a problem because people don't feel they have any purpose, any meaning, or any value. They don't know what they are, they don't know who they are, and they don't feel that it even matters. But when you get how much God loves you and he sacrificed for you, And the plan that he's laid out for your life, not only does your life take on meaning and purpose, the last thought in your mind is wanting to do something like that, or even commit any of the common sins that are plaguing our society. Like, I mean, we're living in the most sinful time that's almost ever been, except Noah's time. But Jesus said, that's the prophecy, it's happening. So, the sanctuary message definitely is speaking to our hearts at a time in which we need to understand it. Because I think sometimes even Seventh day Adventist Christians, get discouraged, or they feel like, does it really matter if I'm a Seventh-day Adventist? Or does God really care if I'm saved? Absolutely. If you are not in heaven, there is a part of the universe's story that's missing. Have you ever thought about that? There's only one of you, and God can't replace you. He can't reproduce your exact character experience, everything genetically you've gone through, all the struggles and all the victories that he longed to give you, And the song that you'll sing throughout eternity. Why would you break God's heart that way? The answer is, if you don't know God, then it's really hard to obey God. But if you know God and you love God, you will delight to do his will. Jesus understood this so clearly. That's why he could even go to the cross and consider it a joy. Which is totally like revolutionary to the way we think about doing Christianity. It's talking about living the life that he's offered us. So. In terms of the next piece of furniture, we talked about the entrance to the sanctuary in our message a couple weeks ago. We're going to look now at Exodus 27, and we're going to look at the altar because this is what represented the cross, what represented where Christ would die for us. Exodus 27, verses 1 through 8. I invite you to turn there. Exodus 27, verses 1 through 8. It's described as the altar of burnt offering. So, Exodus 27 beginning in verse 1. The command was given to Moses in behalf of the children of Israel to construct this. It says, And thou shalt make an altar of shittim wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be four square, and the height thereof shall be three cubits. And thou shalt make the horns of it upon the four corners thereof. His horns shall be of the same, and thou shalt overlay it with brass. And thou shalt make his pans to receive his ashes, and his shovels, and his basins, and his flesh hooks, and his fire pens, all the vessels thereof, thou shalt make of brass. And thou shalt make for it a great network of brass, and upon the net shalt thou make four brace and rings, in the four corners thereof. And thou shalt put it under the compass of the altar beneath, that the net may be even to the midst of the altar. And thou shalt make staves for the altar, staves of shittim wood, and overlay them with brass. And the staves shall be put into the rings, and the staves shall be upon the two sides of the altar to bear it. Hollow with boards shalt thou make it, As it was showed thee in the mount, so shalt thou make it. So, very descriptive of how it was constructed. We're talking about a piece of furniture that was about seven and a half feet, seven and a half feet. And I've actually seen the full model of this constructed. I'd mentioned this, that Messiah's mansion was a traveling, full-scale model exhibit of the sanctuary. And so, I mean, they had taken boards and they'd spray-painted them that looked brass. But all the pieces of furniture within the courtyard were brass because they represent important elements and developments in Christ's ministerial work for us on earth. Brass representing earthly things. And so continue now in Exodus 29, 38 through 43. We're going to look at the service connected with using this piece of furniture. Exodus 29, verse 38 through 43. Now this is that which thou shalt offer upon the altar two lambs of the first year day by day continually. The one lamb thou shalt offer in the morning, and the other lamb thou shalt offer it even. And with the one lamb a tenth deal of flour mingled with the fourth part of an hen of beaten oil, and the fourth part of an hen of wine for a drink offering. And the other lamb thou shalt offer it even, and shalt do thereto according to the meat offering of the morning, and according to the drink offering thereof, for a sweet savor, an offering made by fire unto the Lord. This shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord, where I will meet you to speak there with thee. And there I will meet with the children of Israel, and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. Now, don't miss that there was a lamb offered in the morning and in the evening, because now we're going to unpack the meaning of this piece of furniture and its service as it is essential in the plan of salvation. Those lambs represent a specific person. If you go to John 1, verse 29, and they don't represent two, they represent one. The reason they had to offer so many lambs is because continually, God was trying to make clear the lesson of what Jesus himself would finally, once and for all, complete. John chapter 1, and verse 29. Now, while Christ completed the sacrifice on the cross, the plan of salvation was still unfolding. And that's what we need to understand. So John chapter 1 and verse 29. John the Baptist in his prophetic ministry was heralding in Christ as the forerunner. Verse 29. The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. So if Jesus is the Lamb of God and John is telling people, Behold him, then to truly follow this injunction means not just to behold him for a moment. It means to keep beholding him in all that he will do for us. So that means we need to follow him in his ministry. Like, how did he relate to people? How did he treat people? He was merciful and gracious, and everything that he did was a revelation of the Father's character. But how did Christ not just live a perfect sacrificial animal life, and as it were, I'm not saying that he was an animal, but he was fulfilling that aspect of the sanctuary. Jesus himself, would live a perfect life, and these lambs had to be spotless, blameless. You couldn't, you know, take from your flock, well, this one's got a broken leg, so we'll give God kind of what's left over. You know, and there's incredible lessons here. I think sometimes we're tempted to give God our leftovers, like, well, I have a few dollars left over to give. God is asking for us to put him first, the very best that we can give to God, dressing our best on Sabbath, giving our best tithes and offerings, and I'm saying, you're doing this out of love. You're not earning favor in the sight of God. Favor has been secured through Jesus once and for all. But how can we truly say we love him if we're not willing to be transformed by that love? And so it just follows that even these lambs represented a sacrifice on the part of those who were bringing them. You know, and actually, even when the Passover was offered, I must mention this, that those lambs would actually stay with the family for quite some time, and they would bond with that lamb. In fact, not only would they bond with that lamb, but how many of you have pets like that you really love? Can you imagine taking your beloved, whatever your animal's name is, and then cutting its throat, catching its blood, and having that blood represent what you have done to God? It was graphic. It was very profound in its emotional impact on the person that did this. A person who was to bring their lamb really felt that this is horrible. And God's like, exactly. Sin is horrible. If you really feel like the sense of the guilt that this brings to, to God's heart, like the shame that Jesus felt on the cross, truly, you will turn away from it. Because God has something better for you than sin. I like to say that the devil has basically hijacked us. That's really what it is. Sin is a hijack. You know, like if we talk about terrorism in our world. The devil is the big terrorist. I mean, I think often we like to point at different people that are doing things, but if they're doing that, they're just under the devil's control. Sin is a hijacking of what we were meant to be, and that is we were meant to enjoy the presence of God and worship him and serve him out of an appreciation of who he is. Jesus got that his whole life, and he lived it, even though he was willing to face just like that innocent. I mean, lambs are very timid and kind of you know gentle creatures. Jesus, meek and mild and humble, and, and yet the thought of him dying for my sin, that should really make sin be like, I don't want to do that anymore, God. Like, take this away from me. This is disgusting. And so that's exactly what was conveyed by the gravity of these offerings. It was to really impact the person who, you know, you realize the Israelite nation, they came out of slavery, out of Egypt. A lot of them had really become numb to what sin was because idols were everywhere and there's all kinds of licentiousness and sin and it just seems normal. Kind of sounds like our society, right? So if we need to come out of Egypt spiritually, we need to follow the plan of salvation to the sanctuary to the point where what seems normal to our society is like, I'm not touching that. I'm not going on that website. I'm not going to listen to that. I don't want to have anything to do with these sins because they have crucified my Lord. It's those sins that bring pain to the heart of God. So following the sacrifice of Jesus being this lamb, let's go to Mark fifteen twenty five and see that he exactly fulfilled the offering of the morning. Mark 15, verse 25. In fact, he in himself is a complete fulfillment of the sacrifice. And I really marveled at this, the genius mind behind the Bible and how the details that are given are significant. They're there to show you that your faith can rest securely on the foundation as it is in Jesus. Mark 15, verse 25 speaking of the crucifixion of Christ, and it was the third hour, and they crucified him. Now, the third hour would be 9 a.m. This was the time in which the sanctuary service would open, 9 a.m. Now, you might say, okay, well, that's the first lamb, but what about the second one? That was in the evening at the ninth hour or 3 p.m. Go to Matthew 27, verse 46. And this is after Jesus has been hanging in an agony for six hours, three of those hours, by the way, from noon to 9 p.m., he's been enshrouded in this darkness. The father was very merciful because Jesus was crucified naked. He was mocked. He was spitted on. He was derided. And in mercy, the father wanted to be near his son and he veiled himself in that thick darkness. And it was a symbol of the incredible darkness that enshrouded Jesus' soul because he felt separated from God. Just like, imagine the most Broken, sinful time in your life when you felt there was no hope for you. Multiply that by billions and then put it on one man named Jesus. That's what the cross is really about. It's about this incredible darkness and death and suffering that actually is able to break the power of sin in our life if we really understand how much we're loved by God. Matthew twenty-seven forty-six. So this is culminating and he's finally in, it, in this agony, prophetic fulfillment of Psalm 22. He's crying out, in this despairing agony, and as it were, because he is dying as a sin offering. Matthew 27, verse 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, about the ninth hour, because if you follow this, continuing, you'll find in verse 50, Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. But before he does that, he fulfills what words are spoken in John 19, 30. It is finished. So while Christ gives expression to what sin is causing in his soul, separation, he does not die without faith. And this is where, you know, when you think about in the struggles that we go through, sometimes people say, well, I don't really have faith that I can do that. God has faith for you. It's the faith of Jesus. When you feel utterly broken, Like you've done it again and God can't accept you. Don't listen to those lies. They're just the devil's 24-7 radio station. Don't listen. I'm just being honest because that's really what it is. Like You have a choice moment by moment. Am I going to listen to God's truth or the devil's lies? And the devil doesn't just have to lie to you directly. He's got the world to lie to you. He's got your fallen nature to lie to you. And, I mean, he can send demons to try to afflict you. Don't listen to the suggestion to stay away because you have sinned too greatly. That is a lie. Jesus, though he felt the weight of sin, he still died victorious. When you feel oppressed by the sense of your guilt and sin and shame, that is the very moment to pray and ask God to save and forgive you and to give you victory because Jesus has offered that to you. It's his faith, the faith of Jesus, that's being offered us through the sanctuary. So here as he's dying the sacrifice, we recognize that this then leads to, well, what is our part in this, God? Because the sacrifice is complete. And I'll be very honest with you, this is why the Christianity that I grew up with was so powerless. So powerless. Because the cross was lifted up like this is the sign that we are now free in Jesus to, fill in the blank, rebel. Fill in the blank, continue to sin and then ask God to forgive us. And it really didn't fit with what I was actually reading in the Bible. And it did not align with the core experience of my own soul. I was in an incredible amount of turmoil because I was being fed false theology. If you feed on false theological ideas, they have an influence. The truth is that the cross is there to show us that a complete sacrifice has been made and now power is available to us to break free from Satan's deceptions. Because the devil will say, oh, it's just one time. You know, just break the Sabbath this time. You know, God will understand. That phrase, God will understand, I really believe is being taken to proportion that means I can do whatever I want and then ask God to forgive me later. That kind of, and I'll be honest with you, that basically was the theological experience and the broken Christianity I was doing. Like, I knew that certain movies were immoral, that there was swearing in them and it was wrong, but I'd go to the movie theater and I'd do, Lord, forgive me for what I'm about to watch. See, it doesn't work that way. When you truly see the goodness of God, you say, Lord, keep me from going there in the first place. I don't want to fill my mind with the things that broke your heart. When the gospel is clearly understood, God actually can change how you think and feel. This is the power of the gospel. This is the renewing of our minds. So in in light of beholding the sacrifice of Christ, it leads me to one of my favorite promises in The Desire of Ages, page 83, paragraph 4. It says, it would be well for us to spend a thoughtful hour each day in contemplation of the life of Christ. We should take it point by point and let the imagination grasp each scene, especially the closing ones. As we thus dwell upon his great sacrifice for us, our confidence in him will be more constant, our love will be quickened, and we shall be more deeply imbued with his spirit. If we would be saved at last, we must learn the lesson of penitence and humiliation before the cross. That statement has meant so much to me because there are times when God feels far away or you feel like you're struggling to the point where there's no hope for you. The answer, once again, is go to the foot of the cross. Think about what God paid for you, the value that he places on your soul. I mean, and this is something I love to tell young people. It doesn't matter what your age. But I like to tell children, I say, did you realize that your life cost Jesus? You are equal in value to the Son of God. I mean, that takes on a whole new perspective. Like, okay, now, then that means that there's a response. You know, that how can I not value the life God has given me? Because you are of infinite value to God because of what he's done for you. And so in Micah 6, verse 7 and 8, the question of like, how do we respond to this is is so beautifully given here in Micah 6, verse 7 and 8. Because even in Old Testament times, it might have felt like, well, should I bring another offering? Or are you asking me to, to give my firstborn? And God is saying, what I'm desiring is your life. I'm desiring your character. I'm desiring your motives, purposes, and plans to be in harmony with what really is happiness. And that is holiness. Micah 6, 7 and 8. Micah 6, 7, and 8. And that's the question, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Now, before I answer this in the next verse, you have to realize the time which is being written, that the temptation for many of the Israelites at different times in their history was that they would sometimes sacrifice their children to Molech. They would give up their, because they thought they were appeasing God. There's this whole, like, Every time Satan brings deceptions, it leads away from what verse 8 is all about. They thought, well, if I can do this, and if I can offer this, and we could bring more to God, God will finally accept us, and he'll bless us. God already has blessed you beyond what you can ask or think in sending Jesus to be your Savior. All he's really asking for is that you would be all in for him. And it's not so hard when you get it, but the struggle is to get it. And I'm just being very, like, point blank. Getting it means beholding it. It means experientially change who you are. That's the gospel. It makes you a different person. If you're a new creature. And so verse 8, He has showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. In other words, this is the fruit of knowing God. Because why would you want to walk unjustly? And why would you want to be cold and unchristlike like and distant to people when they need mercy And why would you want to ask, like, God is not there? Because every day we're tempted to accept the lies of the devil that we can do it on our own. You cannot live the Christian life on your own. And I'm not talking about, like, okay, I had personal devotions, I read my Bible, I even spent a thoughtful hour on the life of Jesus, but then I can have a 10-minute timeout on the Internet. No, there's no timeouts with God. God doesn't take a timeout for you. Moment by moment, the Holy Spirit and the ministering angels are protecting you From the devil trying to destroy your life. I don't think we realize we're in a war. The sanctuary is actually God's war plan model to get us home. Like, we weren't intended to stay here this long, actually. We're quite a few years overdue. I like to say we're kind of in the universe's overtime. And God is saying, I'm waiting for people that are experiencing what I'm offering them. And it's through the sanctuary. I love how Jesus, in his life, he showed that this plan was to be a complete success. And he lived the sacrifice, not just at the cross, every moment of his life. So when our lives are so enwrought with God's spirit, we're saying, Lord, what is your desire for me today? How may I serve you today? And how may I be in harmony with heaven? And when our hearts are in tune with God, it's a delight to do God's will. And so here in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, Paul is picking up really this underlying concept of complete surrender and abiding in Christ and the response that is only true response to what Jesus has done for us, Romans 12, verse 1 and 2, where the question, and really the statement of invitation here, in light of all that God has sacrificed for us, all that has been paid for us, you know, like your acceptance before God is based on the sacrifice of Christ. But the fruit of that, to the extent that you really understand and believe that and live that, will be what we read here in Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you therefore brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove it as that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So a living sacrifice. In reality, in many ways, it's more of a sacrifice to live to the coming of Jesus than it is to die before he comes. And I'll say why. Because those who will live to the coming of Jesus are going to go through greater trials. But if you understand what Christ understood, if you know the character of God and you know the plan of salvation, you'll know that he needs living witnesses to demonstrate this reality, that God is able to completely remove sin from your life, and you would rather do God's will than your own, to the point where the prayer of Christ in Gethsemane, nevertheless not as I will, but as thou will, is not something you pray Merely when you're making difficult decisions, it's what you're praying when you first wake up. It's what you're praying throughout the day. You're asking for God's will, and he actually has good things in store for you in that will. Jesus' joy was in the uplifting of our lives to be with him. I'd like us to turn to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Really building on this concept of living sacrifices, Jesus has shown us the way. He's pioneered the faith that we need. Hebrews 12, verse 1 and 2. Jesus considered it a joy to face what he did for us. And in Galatians 2:20, we realize that Paul is basically describing this experience of overcoming, this complete identification with Christ that when you're called to do something that seems totally out of your league, so to speak, totally out of your comfort zone, you say, "Well, I just have to remember that it's Christ that's going to work in me and I'm going to abide in him and he's going to make it possible." Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. This is the promise. This is what the sanctuary service was contemplating for us, the sacrifice that we become so identified with Jesus or one with him. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, you might ask, how am I to abide in Christ? What does this actually look like? Well, there's basically only two ways to live in this life, by the flesh or by the Spirit. And you can't do both at the same time. They're at complete war with one another. And so if we are truly crucified with Christ, this looks like, quote Galatians 5, we're going to start in verse 19 because if we understand what the flesh is, if this is your character, this is what you're doing, thinking, focusing on, this is evidence that you're not experiencing what Christ has offered you in his sacrifice. But thankfully, there's always hope. You can turn your life over to him and then he will fill you with his character, which is his spirit. And this is not a, like, you have to do all of them to be out of the kingdom of God. Even the committing of one of these sins and continually cherishing it is enough to neutralize the power of the gospel. Because it's a completely antagonistic power system. It's the fallen nature. It's rebellion against God. But God says, I didn't intend for my children to experience that and live that way. That's why the gospel I had heard growing up was so powerless. Because it was almost like, well, a little bit of that, a little bit of that, and that's just kind of the way we all are, and That's just kind of your experience, and thank God that he forgives us, we're all going to heaven. We're going like, that just doesn't fit. And so, verses 22 and 23 is what our experience becomes when we're crucified with Christ. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such, there is no wall. All these fruits of the Spirit, all these traits of character, are the divine nature. So working the Holy Spirit in us, and not one will be missing when Christ lives in us by faith. God truly is calling for our heart. When you come to the foot of the cross, you're going to start to feel two incredible realities. Your own incredible sinfulness and the incredible love of Jesus. And it is the beautiful synthesis of those realities that actually enables you to live a humble and obedient life never lose sight of your continual need of Jesus. And that's what the new heart is all about. Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. Because while Jesus has died for us, he's inviting us to die to ourselves and to receive this new heart, which is what the crucifixion was all about, offering us a new beginning, a new heart, and a new start. And from this heart, we will then be enabled to receive what he next has for us, the wash and the cleansing, which we'll learn about in a couple weeks, about the labor and all of this is essential for our experience. Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27, he promises, A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you an heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. When that new heart is at work in you, Like a GPS system that's charged, that's programmed for the direction it should go, God will lead you in the path of life. You will find greater joy in doing God's will than any of the joys that you thought you had living in sin, which are only temporary, and they always bring shame and sorrow. You can't sin and not have problems afterwards. But you can't spend time with Jesus truly and not be blessed. He's preparing us for infinite blessings. So Jesus is calling us to follow that GPS system of the sanctuary, his very life, and say, Lord, have all my heart. We're so weak, we can't even give our heart to him. So we say, Lord, take my heart. Fill me with your spirit. Transform my very character, my thoughts and feelings, and give me a new beginning. And if that is your desire today, to let the sacrifice of Christ transform your very being, to make you a new creature, to give you a new heart, then I invite you to stand with me now because Jesus is offering us something infinitely better than we've ever known without him. Praise the Lord. If there's anyone here this Sabbath that wants to take that decision in realizing, and I'll just be very honest with you, that counterfeit experience that i would had going on so long had to change, and I got rebaptized. There may be someone here that says, Lord, I need a victorious experience. I need to signify that I need a new start, and that you're recognizing it's a change in your very life. It's a change in the way you perceive God's promises. And so if there's anyone here that today either wants to be baptized or re-baptized, would you just like to raise your hand? Is there anyone here? Amen. Praise the Lord. God sees those decisions. Let us kneel together and ask God to seal every one of our hearts for him, for him to live in us and accomplish what we've invited him to do in us. Father in heaven, we kneel before you as truly in need of the power and the grace and the transforming influence of your Holy Spirit. For without you, we can do nothing. Lord, we ask that your spirit will work in us that new heart, that you would create in us clean hearts, that we would live with the consciousness of what sin has cost you, that we would be given through you a true hatred for sin and a love for your will. And I thank you, Lord, for those who have raised their hand today that want to be baptized or rebaptized, Lord, that you'd give them victory in their lives, that they would find joy in doing your will. And Father in heaven, that each and every one of us here would be in heaven and each will hear this message that not one of us would be missing. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: You have been listening to Pastor Sean Brisendine, Pastor of the Houghton Seventh day Adventist Church and assistant pastor of the Bessemer and Greenland Seventh day Adventist Churches. If you've enjoyed this sermon, Why not visit one of his churches this coming Sabbath? I'm sure he'd be glad to meet you.